You're listening to Fighting Terror, a podcast that explores the approaches to fighting terror and extremism in the U.S., Europe, and worldwide. With Lucinda Creighton, Senior Europe Advisor to the Counter-Extremism Project and former Europe Minister. This podcast is brought to you by the Counter-Extremism Project, a research and advocacy group that combats the activities of terrorists and extremist groups globally. Hello and welcome. For today's podcast, I am very honored to be joined by Martha Crenshaw. Martha is a senior fellow emerita at the Center for International Security and Cooperation, Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies, Stanford University, and a professor emerita in the Department of Government at Wiesland University. She published her first article on terrorism in 1972, so she has a very distinguished and long track record in, in this area. Her recent work includes her paper Countering Terrorism with Gary Lefree and Rethinking Transnational Terrorism, an Integrated Approach, United States Institute of Peaceworks Report 2020. She's currently affiliated with the National Counterterrorism Innovation Technology and Education Centre also a center of excellence for the Department of Homeland Security. In today's podcast, we will discuss the legacy of the 9-11 attacks 20 years on. Uh, We will explore how terrorism has evolved and, uh, of course, examine the, the very significant challenges which we face today. So, Martha, I'm really delighted to welcome you to the podcast today. I don't think I need to labor or explain the fact that September 11th, 2001 was really a momentous and infamous date in not just US history, but in global history. And it really was an occasion that that in a sense changed the course of history. And we are still reeling from the aftermath of it today. And I really want to hear your thoughts. I mean, you were already an expert in counterterrorism when the 9-11 attacks occurred on U.S. soil. And I think it would be really interesting to hear from you, you know, at that time, how you felt about it, whether you anticipated um, such an attack or whether you thought it was even conceivable that such an attack could occur on U.S. soil. Well, thank you very much for having me on this almost 20th anniversary of 911. Yes, I had been studying terrorism and counterterrorism for a number of years, decades actually, reflecting on it when the attacks happened. Did I expect it? No, I was as surprised as anyone else. And that was despite the fact that I had followed Al-Qaeda. I was well aware of who did it once it happened, who it had to be. I was aware that Al-Qaeda had bombed the U.S. embassies in East Africa in 1998 attacked the USS Cole in 2000, that they had declared war on the United States, that they had clearly said they wished to attack the United States at home. But I don't think any of us thought that it was possible. And indeed, 911 was extraordinary and exceptional. If you had described to someone that plot, you would have thought it was totally incredible that such a thing could have been pulled off. And yet it was. The effect was stunning. I was teaching in Connecticut at that time, and of course, we were close, very close to New York, and a number of our students were from New York, had relatives in New York. And I had a class that morning, and a class actually on terrorism that afternoon. And 
of course, we went, all went on and met our classes. Every student came, every student came. And of course, the question, who did this and why, what did they want? So both classes were devoted to discussing what had happened. We were all in a state of shock. For my class on terrorism, many, many, many people came where it got around that, that that existed. It was one of the first classes of the semester. There were people sitting in the windows and on the floor and standing outside trying to listen through the window in the hallway. People just wanted to know to get some grip on what had happened. So of course, for weeks to come, I lectured on who is Al-Qaeda? Why would they have done this? Not so much how it happened, because as you know, the details were unfolding, but what was the history of Al-Qaeda as an organization? But today, today's students entering college, they weren't born as of 911. So we have to start from scratch and explain to them what a shock it was around the world, not just in the US, but around the world. It's hard to put oneself back on that day, no matter how well one remembers. Wow, that's a really vivid memory, and, and it's quite incredible that you were teaching that class that day, and I can only imagine the level of interest and the thirst for knowledge and understanding when something so shocking occurred um, so close to, to where you were teaching. The sense that I had, I, I was in New York for that working, I was a student at the time actually, I was in New York working that summer too, I had returned home the day before 9-11 actually, I had been playing volleyball in the World Trade Center just a few days before, so I guess we all have these strange connections and memories of that, that moment, you know, and seeing the towers fall and learning the unfolding devastation as the day and the weeks went on. And what struck me at the time was the sense of sort of unity of purpose amongst Americans and obviously you know the the role that that the president George W Bush played at that time in rallying a kind of a common sense of purpose and I suppose 20 years on my question is you know is there still that sense of a kind of commonly shared perception of 9-11 obviously you've mentioned you know there's a whole generation now who, who don't recall it who weren't alive and you know ha has America maybe or have Americans lost their resolve in sort of seeking justice and trying to prevent a, a future attack or is that threat even really seen to be there right now? The feeling the incredible feeling of solidarity and mutual sympathy empathy that was the immediate result of 911 was amazing. If you rode around the countryside, American flags were everywhere. There was a sense truly of national unity, a sense of a, a shared threat. But of course, over time, that kind of solidarity began to break down and it broke down very quickly with the development of prejudice against Muslims, against Islam as a religion. So divisions began to creep up, I think, fairly quickly. And of course, the measures that the government took to combat terrorism, to try to prevent 911 from happening again, were divisive in themselves. The effects on civil liberties, heightened surveillance, airport security measures, these things became controversial as well. The immediate reaction, the declaration of a global war on terrorism or on terror, international terror, was also somewhat controversial. I myself was quite apprehensive about the notion of declaring war on terrorism. I felt that we should have confined our efforts to crushing Al-Qaeda per se as an organization, as an entity rather than 
this amorphous, all terrorism of international reach. So that solidarity was very strong, but it inevitably would, would not last, especially as the threat appeared to, to recede or let us say to change in nature over time. Remember the immediate aftermath of 911 was a fear that another such attack was imminent, truly imminent. There was great fear of that. Government decision makers certainly felt that. When that did not happen, when time passed and the threat began to shift, then again, that immediate solidarity began to break down. I think that's really interesting. And obviously, I suppose that the, the debate about the war on terror and its justification and the response it looked to 9-11 is debated today and no doubt will be debated long into the future. And I think I read somewhere a comment from you, it may have been on the 15th anniversary of 9-11, if memory serves me, where you spoke about the fact that the 9-11 Commission itself issued a series of recommendations, but those recommendations did not necessarily correlate with the sort of the issues that were identified to be resolved. And I thought that was a really interesting observation. So, I mean, I suppose looking back, you know, are there particular steps that, that should or could have been taken at that time, you know, rather than the sort of the amorphous war on terror, which you've described? Well, especially now, after the collapse of Afghanistan, the devastating finale to that war, hindsight is going to prove 2020, I think, and the recriminations, criticisms will, will proliferate. I will say that I think a number of us are on record as having felt that the global war on terror was far too expensive. And I think a number of people certainly were on record in 2003 as thinking that it was unwise and, and based on faulty assumptions and information to invade Iraq as part of a global war on terrorism, that the links between Saddam Hussein and uh, al-Qaeda were, were non-existent uh, in effect. And by invading Iraq, we actually gave al-Qaeda a new lease on life because the 911 attacks were controversial, even among people who followed extremist versions of, of Islam. And many people felt that without the invasion of Iraq, al-Qaeda could have been defeated, reduced, whatever terminology you want to use, much more quickly. So that was a mistake. I also always felt the notion of imprisoning unlawful combatants, quote unquote, in Guantanamo was a terrible mistake and said that from the beginning to everyone I could, including people in the administration, uh, with no effect, as you can see. Uh, this was a terrible mistake that people captured could have been tried in US civilian courts rather than create extraordinary legal measures to deal with them. I felt that also fueled anti-Americanism and actually helped Al-Qaeda's cause much more than it helped it. Then of course, drone warfare, developed as a result of 911 and the global war on terror. How effective was that in dealing with sort of the spreading tentacles of Al-Qaeda uh, as more and more opportunities present itself for the organization and its offshoots, such as the civil war in Syria? That's still debated. Extremist networks were degraded, but in the long run, did we create more anti-Americanism? It's really hard to say. A number of the effects of, of the global war on terrorism remain to be revealed. 
I suppose maybe a slightly pejorative question then arising from that is, you know, there's always this sort of grand objective of making the world a safer place. And if you look back at the last 20 years, um, you know, it's a, it's, it's a big question. Is the world a safer place or maybe more specifically, is the United States a safer place? I mean, there hasn't been, as you noted, an attack on the scale of 9-11. So is that in itself a success or are there other threats and risks? that have evolved as a result? Well, is the world a safer place? Some parts of the world are safer. Some parts of the world are not safer. For example, the Sahel, North Africa, uh, parts of Asia, Africa are not safer. Syria, they're not safer. Libya, they, they are not safer. Now, Afghanistan, Afghans aren't safer. So it's a very uneven level of, of, let us say, security. Uh, in the United States and in its uh, many of its allies, the threat morphed into a threat of homegrown terrorism in the sense of citizens, residents of these countries being inspired largely by Al-Qaeda and its various offshoots and branches because Al-Qaeda had shifted into being more of a franchise operation than a unitary centralized organization. Mostly, for example, I've traced uh, not just attacks on the U.S. since 9-1-1, but those that didn't succeed, the plots that we were able to discover by looking in the public domain. And the perpetrators were almost always uh, citizens of the country or legal immigrants uh, to the country, uh, often acting alone or in very small groups, acting again, not out of direct orders, but out of inspiration. Now, we've had some attacks that were organized by ISIS or Al-Qaeda in France, for example, at the Bataclan, uh, London, uh, Madrid, and those attacks in 2004, five, six, certainly alarmed us a lot about the dangers of homegrown terrorism. But as you have said, nothing on the scale of 911, nothing. And Al-Qaeda was not able to repeat 911. It could never have gotten away with such a surprise a second time. Yeah. I mean, looking at Al Qaeda, and you've referenced a number of the attacks in Europe in the aftermath of 9 11 as well. And of course, the more recent spate of attacks on European soil from 2016 onwards, Brussels in particular comes to mind, Germany, France, Spain have all been hit, but not under the banner of Al Qaeda. So, you know, offshoots of ISIS and so on. Again, many of them European citizens, returning foreign fighters. Has Europe perhaps become a, an easier target than the United States? Do, do you think that perhaps there are you know, greater security failings on European soil than in, in the US in recent years? Well, let us say, I don't think security failings would be a fair description so much as the fact that uh, Europe is more vulnerable more vulnerable demographically, more vulnerable geographically, more vulnerable because of the freedom of movement, again, within the Schengen zone. It's easier, quicker for people to move from conflict zones into what we would like to think of as secure zones. People looking at interstate warfare have talked about the stopping power of water. It's harder to attack a country that's a long way from you. And the same is true for terrorism. So once 
We managed to really control air travel through elaborate security measures. Then it became harder and harder. There were some penetrations of U.S. security. For example, the famous Christmas bomber who came from a Nigerian coming from Yemen, of all things. But it was rare. And in many ways, it was good security. Yes, I don't want to downplay the role of U.S. security agencies, which from a minor, minor threat, terrorism leaped overnight to being the number one national security threat. It was extraordinary. I assure you that before 9-1-1, it was not a priority for anybody, truly, except those of us who studied it. It was a priority for us. <laughs> we were a tiny minority of people at that time. Then the shift to, to security, nobody wanted another attack to happen on their watch. Absolutely. And so security was very tight. That's not to say that European police and intelligence agencies weren't also working over time. Yeah. Looking at Al-Qaeda specifically, I mean, I suppose many in the U.S. administration would and could argue that the operation post 9-11 was successful in that it did ultimately lead to the demise of Osama bin Laden. And with that, arguably the weakening of Al-Qaeda. I mean, how do you assess that now in, in the year 2021? Do you think that Al-Qaeda is, you know, somewhat rudderless, weakened, or I guess in the context of what's happening in Afghanistan at the moment, perhaps you see a fertile breeding ground now for, for the resurrection of Al-Qaeda. I'd be very interested to hear your thoughts on that. Well, those of us who follow terrorism closely and counterterrorism have been concerned for some time about the possibility that a Taliban-dominated Afghanistan could again become some sort of breeding ground for terrorism under al-Qaeda, a home. So that has been a fear. There's been a lot of discussion about it and, as usual, uh, divided opinions about how likely the Taliban and al-Qaeda are ideologically still very close. Uh, Al-Qaeda always regarded uh, Mullah Omar, the founder of the Taliban, as the supreme leader. They regarded Afghanistan as the only true Islamic emirate. Al-Qaeda never approved of the ISIS project of the caliphate. They regarded ISIS as an upstart, foolhardy, and which perhaps it was. And in other words, uh, they thought the Taliban was the legitimate embodiment of their aspirations. And the Taliban has never ever relinquished its support of Al-Qaeda in principle, in principle. And they have sheltered Al-Qaeda operatives in Afghanistan. So the question is, would and could the Taliban stop Al-Qaeda from resuming its kind of global ambitions of attacking the West? And the Taliban is actually not as unified as we might imagine that it is. All psychologists will tell you that we have a human tendency to think that our adversary is always in control, always reasoned, strategic, has a purpose, whereas we know that we are disorganized and shambolic and sometimes do things that we can't remember later why we did them. So the Taliban is that way. We're likely to impart more rationality and more control from the center. I don't think that the top leadership of the Taliban is in control which means that there could be elements of the Taliban who would help al-Qaeda. Uh, and again, uh, I don't think our intelligence on this issue is going to be really very good now. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess that is going to be an ongoing weakness now for the international community, for NATO, for the U.S. administration and beyond. 
with uh, with obviously a much diminished uh, presence in Afghanistan and in, in the region. In terms of um, some of the other reactions to 9-11 and maybe with a more domestic focus, obviously there were significant legislative and policy changes and you've alluded to some of them. You had the Patriot Act, you had the creation of the Department of Homeland Security and a lot of intrusion, arguably, into privacy, civil liberties, etc. Is that something that you think is uh, sustainable? Was, is there a, a pushback or is there a sort of a reaction amongst the American population to that? There was pushback in earlier years, I would say about a, perhaps 10 years ago, a little longer than that. There was a lot of pushback. In my view, that pushback has diminished as we've become accustomed to a lot of these measures. And also some of them were rolled back over time. I've argued that governments often tend to overreact in the sense of just taking an enormous number of sweeping measures in the immediate aftermath of, of a disastrous attack and then find it unable to, you can't roll them back. You can have sunset laws. You can try to do everything you can to make these measures temporary, but it's very difficult to roll anything back. And we have rolled some back. To, to a certain extent, but others we've simply gotten accustomed to. For example, surveillance. I referred to the fact that I had studied failed and foil plots in the U.S. Actually, judging, I counted them from the first attack on the World Trade Center in 1993 up pretty much to the present. And there's an extensive use, for example, of informers to discover these plots. And there's often been a question of whether there would even actually have been a plot had there not been an informer who offered to provide, say, explosives or, or a weapon. So extensive use of informers, and that creates suspicion in minority communities. Uh, and these are things that I think we just came to accept over time. There was some pushback initially, and then inertia sets in. We move on to other things, and we've come to accept a lot of measures that when they were immediately imposed were more, more striking to us. Look at airport security measures. We now all go immediately standing in line patiently, uh, divesting ourselves of our shoes and our liquids and our laptops. Nobody's ever been caught trying to bring explosives through a security checkpoint. Now you could say that's because we've deterred them. Nobody is trying because they know they can't get through. Uh, I actually worry more about all of us grouped together in a crowd waiting to go through security myself. But we accept that. Nobody complains about it anymore. And you look back, wait, we did complain about that. We didn't like it. And now we simply accept it. And I think that's been true in all the countries that have implemented these kinds of security measures. Acceptance has grown over time yeah. with Cabot. That's interesting. And I mean, I guess I suppose the public facing measures are, you know, the airport security, the things that, you know, people see and uh, are aware of because they impact their lives. Probably, you know, the use of informants and that type of um, more surreptitious activity is something that the public at large are not aware of so much. I'm Irish and obviously we had our issues in Northern Ireland for uh, several decades and of course um, um, double agents and triple agents and quadruple agents where nobody knew exactly who was spying on who because or providing intelligence to who because you know there was there was so much crossover so it's it's interesting to see that that is obviously um, just part and parcel of this world of counterterrorism and intelligence gathering and so on. 
I suppose um, another issue or aspect of this, which you have written about extensively, is the whole area of transnational terrorism and, I guess, the uh, reaction, if you like, to foreign military intervention and the kind of rationale that it becomes for transnational terrorism. Is that something that you have tracked and seen a, a significant increase in, in in the years since 9-11? The short answer is yes. And uh, referring back to your earlier question, is the world safer, the parts of the world that are not safer? And it's in these parts that you've had this overlap between transnational terrorism and civil war. So you've had situations where the conditions for civil war were probably already ripe. The widespread discontent, grievances, weak governance structures, corruption, uh, authoritarianism, etc., hosts of problems, then exacerbated sometimes by foreign intervention, which changes the contours of the conflict and often unites the warring parties against the external occupier, be it American or French or whatever the outside UN, whatever the outside force happen uh, to be. And I've argued that these civil wars provide a very favorable breeding ground or let us say terrain of exploitation for transnational Islamist forces, but it would not have to be Islamist. It could be any other kind of transnational ideology that could go in and form alliances with local groups, take up their causes. You see a lot of this in the Sahel area in the, uh, with Al-Qaeda in the, in the Islamic Maghreb spreading from Algeria down into Mali, uh, Niger. Now, of course, violence is spread all through that part of North Africa, Northwest Africa. Uh, you have Somalia and the Shabaab. And then you have Libya, where foreign intervention in an effort to remove the undoubtedly cruel, corrupt, and corrupt reign of Muammar Gaddafi wound up with the country in total total disintegration, thus providing a safe haven and a terrain of exploitation for Islamists who convert people to their cause, who again exploit local conditions, form alliances with local leaders. And the transnational forces bring in foreign fighters. That is one of the driving purposes of Al-Qaeda always has been to participate in these civil wars, to try to overturn secular rule and impose Islamic rule. These civil wars are a wonderful opportunity for them. So what I've argued is that by treating transnational terrorism as something totally separate from the civil war problem, you're making a mistake. The two are intertwined and counterterrorism itself should not be seen in isolation from other policy measures to encourage uh, good governance, uh, stability to overcome the problems of fragile states. We've tended to treat counterterrorism in the U.S. at least as a military problem uh, solvable by special forces and drones. And as I've said, that there can be certain tactical, let us say, gains from use of such military force. But we need to address the problem in a much wider context. So let me say also that academics fall in the same boat. We, those of us who studied terrorism were different people than those people who studied civil wars. And it's only been recently that we've sort of come together more and said, wait, we have a really common subject here. We don't need to go off in different directions. We need to pull it together and understand 
this relationship. As long as there are these conflicts, the Islamist cause, whether it's represented by Al-Qaeda or ISIS, is not going to go away. I mean, we could have probably 10 podcasts on this topic because it is so fascinating. And actually, I, I hosted one a few weeks ago uh, focusing on the situation in Ukraine and the role of foreign fighters there. And of course, that's not Islamist terrorism. It's more far right. So it, it proves your point that this is not just unique to uh, the, the, the problem of Islamist terrorism and terror groups. There are other actors now who are seizing on these opportunities. I mean, <laughs> what is the lesson in all of this, though, for, you know, for, for NATO allies, for example? Because, I mean, you know, I think if I'm hearing correctly, you were talking about supporting the construction of solid institutions and not simply, you know, turning your back after military intervention. But of course, in Afghanistan, you know, I know President Biden has suggested recently that nation building was never the objective. But if you look at everything that has been stated for 20 years, um, nation building, democracy building was very much the objective. And after spending trillions of taxpayers' dollars and, you know, obviously tragic loss of U.S. military lives, loss of tens of thousands of civilian lives, you know, that objective has not been achieved. So is it possible for outside actors to really support these efforts or is it a futile exercise? Those are such difficult questions. And I think we're all, we've been puzzling over them for a long time. We're going to puzzle over them forever, as far as I can see. I think that in the U.S., at least, we were far too ambitious in Afghanistan and in Iraq. We were reeling in the immediate aftermath of 911. That, I think, was part of it. And we were simply too confident in the abilities of Western militaries and Western aid and development measures to achieve permanent change in countries that had, I don't want to say problems, but who had deeply, deeply rooted habits, customs, practices, divisions, etc., that we did not fully understand. I think that it's very difficult, particularly bring in military forces for them to understand the terrain, the context that they're dealing with. This was true in, in both Afghanistan and Iraq. It was true in Vietnam in earlier years. And I think that NATO allies who followed the U.S. loyally in Afghanistan in, in full support, invoking Article 5, much less confident of the outcome in Iraq. Support fell away from the U.S. when we invaded Iraq in 2003 doubts began to set in as to the wisdom of that enterprise, doubts that were undoubtedly very, very, very well-founded. So the U.S. had a tendency to be too ambitious, and many people have said that in Afghanistan there would have been more of a chance of relative success had the U.S. not diverted its attention to Iraq. That's a question we can't answer. It's what they call a counterfactual, what if we had not done this, but we did. And so that if the U.S. had put in a more sustained effort in Afghanistan, could things have been different? Again, many people point to over-ambitiousness, investment of large sums of money in projects that were poorly supervised and that only encouraged corruption. The U.S. 
had an inspector general for Afghanistan who issued reports, many of which were made public. And if you read them, they were devastating from the early years on. It's not as though this was a problem that was only just realized. And a second part of the problem is, or one of the other parts of the problem, because there's certainly more than two, that the staying power of an outside intervener, I think it was General Colin Powell, later Secretary of State, who said, if you broke it, you own it, and you intervene in a country, now you're responsible for the outcome. But after 20 years, U.S. citizens, U.S. leaders, U.S. politicians, despite what they say now, won't out. They simply won't out. They don't want any more of it. The casualties may be low. Yes, they were low among American forces. There's just a feeling, I think, particularly true of President Biden. He'd been dealing with this war during his whole tenure in national politics, that enough was enough. And you had the, the sort of the significant date of 911 sitting in front of you. You had Trump's having laid the groundwork by negotiating with the Taliban by setting a withdrawal date. There was simply, there's no, just simply no desire, no willingness anymore to stay committed in these countries. And it's not so much an outswelling of public opinion. The elites also simply wish to move on and put it behind them. Many people, as you know, have argued that the U.S. could have stayed on and some of its NATO allies as well, because Britain, Germany now hastening to pull out, that a minimal force could have maintained enough stability. But outside interveners don't want to be there for 50 years. Maybe after World War II in Germany and Japan, yes, uh, but not elsewhere, not now. That just has to, that has, should be recognized at the outset. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, you know, following US politics as I do, you know, I think that that narrative has been a common, a common theme, um, a bipartisan common theme in the US for, for some time. And it's also prevalent in the UK and France and elsewhere, other NATO allies, I think for sure. But I mean, it's arguably from a moral standpoint, it's easy for elites, you know, in NATO allied countries to say they want to move on. But of course, the people of Afghanistan will not be able to move on. And that is the tragedy, I guess, of all of this. But maybe a more pragmatic perspective or question is, you know, from a national interest and national security perspective, is the withdrawal, the, the very chaotic withdrawal now, is it potentially opening up Afghanistan and by extension the rest of the region to further deliberate destabilization by other forces like Iran, like Russia, China potentially, others who may see an opportunity now in the withdrawal of NATO um, uh, troops from Afghanistan. Is that something we should be concerned about? I think we should be concerned about it uh, because I don't think you can divorce problems of terrorism and fragile uh, collapsing states from the problems of great power politics. Uh, policymakers, I think, have tended to divorce those policy realms from each other. Uh, certainly, I think China already has made overtures to the Taliban, uh, secured apparently a promise from the Taliban not to support the Uyghur movement in China. Russia, I understand from press reports, is also eager to, uh, to form a, a better relationship with its former adversary, uh, the Taliban. Uh, Pakistan is thinking hard about what to do. 
Uh, India, I think, is probably apprehensive because India is in the in the crosshairs, in effect, of Al Qaeda. They're very interested in India, and of course, there's the Indo-Pakistani conflict. So there's going to be a period of uncertainty and regional instability, certainly how we'll navigate our way through that in a world in which the US will certainly have suffered a loss of credibility and reputation. How long that lasts, how great the loss is, is really hard to say, but certainly anybody thinking, well, I'll ask the US or NATO to intervene to help me out here, isn't gonna think that for very, very long. Memories will fade, they will certainly fade and great powers will remain great powers. But I guess I see that China is, is, that's going to be very interesting to see how the Taliban relates to other powers in the region. And certainly Iran, I'm sure, is having some long, hard thoughts about what's going to happen in terms of their relationship with Afghanistan. What do they do if the Taliban start persecuting the Shia inhabitants of Afghanistan? We should note probably in all fairness that Al-Qaeda has not been nearly as as opposed to Shia, as hostile to the Shia faith as ISIS has been. And we should also remember that the Taliban has always been hostile to ISIS. ISIS is present there. ISK, we call it Khorasan province. But Taliban and ISIS, I don't see as allies. Taliban and Al-Qaeda, yes. And again, Al-Qaeda less sectarian than, than ISIS, which if I were Iran, that would give me a tiny, tiny bit of comfort. Is that an incentive then for the Taliban to harbor and even allow Al-Qaeda to grow and develop um, once again in Afghanistan? Is, is that a motivating factor, the resistance to ISIS? That could be part of it. I'm not sure. I myself would think that it's more ideological or religious, spiritual affinity between the two. Their belief systems are completely sympathetic to each other. They are. They think along the same lines. They won't an Islamic emirate. They believe that majority Muslim countries should be ruled in the name of Islam, a very strict form of Islam. So they want the same things. And again, Al-Qaeda always thought that Afghanistan under the Taliban represented what they wish to aspire in, in other countries as well. The question will be, how determined will they be to export this particular ambition? And that, I would say, we simply do not know. And I don't imagine that any of our intelligence agencies know either. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It's uh, what an enormous challenge. A final question. And uh, we've covered a lot of territory in a relatively short period of time. And this is, you know, this is perhaps the million dollar question. So, I mean, you have um, developed a reputation as one of the US, one of the world's leading experts in the area of counterterrorism and uh, terrorism generally. So, you know, if you were standing back and looking at the US administration, President Biden, and obviously, it's been a difficult few weeks, but um, nonetheless, we are just approaching the anniversary of 9-11, the 20-year 20, 20 anniversary. Where do you see the gaps in the US government's approach to counterterrorism? Where would you be recommending they focus their efforts now? Are there measures and steps that could be taken that perhaps haven't been so far that you would recommend the administration now pursue? Well, they're going to be very 
a very large number of inhibiting factors even now, and so many other problems to deal with, COVID, extreme partisanship, domestic ambitions, infrastructure bill, greater inequality, voting, so, so very many issues, a lot of which are domestic, that I think that there may be a tendency in some circles to say, well, that's it, we pulled out of Afghanistan, anniversary of 911 the global war on terror is over it's over we really we don't want to go that way anymore we're just going to drop it we're going to turn to something else this is reasonably characteristic after vietnam we forgot that we knew anything about insurgency and counterinsurgency we reinvented counterinsurgency doctrine it was extraordinary to those of us who had studied it so many years earlier. So there will be a tendency to say, this is a very unpleasant episode, let us put it behind us and move on to something else. The US is also very concerned about far right terrorism. And it is also a real, very real problem. The events of January the 6th were enormously alarming, uh, not as shocking as 911, but tremendously shocking that I'm still shocked. I was shocked by that as well. So in my own research, I have turned more to look at right-wing terrorism. But in looking at right-wing terrorism, we shouldn't forget that there are other threats out there, but always keep reminding ourselves it's not just a problem of Islam and Islamist extremism. There's extremism that, that occurs in the context of any kind of ideology, no matter how benign in most of its obvious principles, there can be extremist and violent fringes of it. So we've got to adapt to counterterrorism policy that doesn't focus on just one particular type of terrorism. I do think that right-wing terrorism is gonna pose a greater or at least equal problem for the US and indeed for other countries as well because the transnational connections among these different groups are, are growing. And the effect of social media, both on Islamist extremist terrorism and far-right terrorism is something that we really do not understand that well. So I guess I would say that if one thing I would want to make sure that we investigate very closely is this relationship. How does social media and the prevalence of even appeals to violence, how does this affect the real world, real world violence? And this is something that we simply don't understand very well, no matter what the ideology. Yeah. It's something that um, we in the Country Extremism Project have been um, focusing on extensively over the last few years as well. But as you say, a lot more work and research um, to, to do in that area. So I think on that note, we will draw our discussion to a close. It's been fascinating. We've covered everything from civil war to counterterrorism measures to big global power politics and everything in between. So. I really do appreciate you taking the time to share your wealth of expertise. It's been a fascinating conversation and I hope that we can perhaps do it again sometime. So Martha Crenshaw, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of our podcast, Fighting Terror. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. It was a very enlightening conversation. We hope you've enjoyed our discussion. Please don't forget to like, comment on and share this episode. You can find out more about Fighting Terror and the Counter-Extremism Project on Twitter using our handle at Fight Extremism and on the homepage of our website.